Okay. Thanks, Stan. Well, I'll begin with um, COP26. Uh, um, I'm not going to um, guess about results, whether it will be a success or a failure, except to say that it's bound to be a failure <laughs> in terms of uh, what is objectively uh, required. And for that matter, it's bound to be a failure, even in terms of what uh, uh, the, was it 95, can't remember the exact figure, 93, 94, 95, 96 parties signed up to after the um, COP15 summit in uh, Paris. So um, at the moment, the trajectory is that they miss their targets for uh, 1.5 degrees, they miss their target for uh, two. Uh, that's how it looks at the moment. I mean, everything tells us that. Okay, so we had the British government basically um, saying, well, this is what we commit to. Now, it has to be said uh, that if we look at global uh, emissions of um, greenhouse gases, uh, they've been going up in spite of uh, Paris. They've uh, continuously uh, risen. Um, in Britain, uh, we've got an opposite picture. Uh, they've gone down. Now, it has to be said uh, that uh, in no small measure, that's been due to the closure um, of the British uh, coal um, industry and um, digging out coal and using coal to generate power stations. Uh, it also has to be admitted that um, uh, there's been a pretty substantial shift, not just to um, oil and gas, uh, although that's been, um, if you go back to 1990, that was the biggest source of new power, but there's been a pretty substantial shift over to um, solar panels. If you go around Britain, you can see lots of houses with solar panels, but I think more importantly uh, to wind power, and obviously that uh, depends on, yeah, you've got it, uh, the wind. Either way, uh, um, you know, if we look at the curve downwards uh, in Britain, it's got shallower uh, and shallower. And if we look at the government's latest measures, uh, it does not fill you with hope uh, that that will be changed. Uh, in other words, you know, while there are measures here that, you know, you shrug your shoulders and go, well, that's pretty unobjectionable. Um, you know, things like um, heat pumps or uh, insulating houses, you cannot object uh, to such measures. Whether that, those measures will make a massive difference, uh, that's open to debate, but I, I don't think anyone would argue they would make no uh, difference. The question then comes to the government's uh, philosophy, where I think um, that if you look at the lesson of COVID-19, where governments uh, have been effective um, in combating the pandemic, it's precisely by marshalling state power, uh, where uh, if you look at governments that um, uh, haven't uh, done that, then we've seen massive um, um, uh, deaths. 
And certainly when it comes to the climate, the idea that Boris Johnson has got uh, that you rely on the invisible hand of the market uh, strikes me as literally a recipe for disaster. So when it comes to heat pumps, when it comes to insulation, um, basically what they're relying on is a little bit of uh, government uh, priming um, and basically then the market takes its course. So if you take heat pumps, I don't know what they cost at the moment, isn't it something like 15,000 pounds or something like that, that with a little bit of government push, uh, uh, more and more people will install these um, uh, devices, uh, the price uh, goes down and then simply um, it becomes, um, how should you put it, affordable and indeed preferable uh, to have um, uh, these devices. The same argument is used with um, electric uh, vehicles and a host of um, um, other measures. Well, I've already made my, my argument around electric vehicles. Of course, they will make some difference, but not a substantial difference. Basically, the car economy uh, remains in place. And even if you go over to 100% renewable uh, sources of uh, uh, power, uh, you've still got the question of the metals that are needed, uh, the plastics uh, that are needed, uh, the rare metals uh, that are needed uh, for computer chips, uh, batteries, one can just carry on. Uh, electric vehicles are not in themselves uh, a solution. Actually, uh, I would argue they are part of uh, the problem. Either way, uh, if we look at uh, the measures that the British government is proposing, my argument is quite straightforward. And, you know, um, you know, just look up the figures. Uh, what they show you uh, is uh, targets uh, basically uh, being missed. Now, we also are told uh, that Xi in China and Putin in Russia uh, won't be attending uh, this summit. Perhaps. Uh, that's because they feared uh, being a target uh, for sanctimonious uh, governments in Britain, uh, the United States, uh, for pointing the finger at uh, China's um, coal-reliant uh, power generation, or Russia being a major producer of oil and gas. I don't know. Um, either way, they're not uh, attending. And again, I just think that we, we need, uh, when it comes, and this is the precise problem with uh, global warming, we don't need to think simply in terms of national units. We need to think in terms of the global economy, the global capitalist economy. Now, whatever you think that China is or isn't, there's no doubt that it is locked in uh, to the global capitalist economy. And therefore, what used to be produced uh, in Britain, uh, and uh, therefore producing, you know, methane, uh, CO2, uh, and all the rest of it, what used to be produced in America, also producing greenhouse gases, is now produced uh, in China. Um, you can't simply look at uh, these countries as, as distinct uh, units. Uh, we are dealing with uh, a global climate, and we're dealing with a global economy to which these countries are actually subordinate. Okay, uh, what else? Well, here's a piece of um, 
well, there's a surprise, it isn't. Uh, we've had, I think, what my guess is, uh, deliberate leaking of the lobbying that's been going on inevitably uh, around the last um, report of the IPCC uh, Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change. And I think something like 23,000 separate documents uh, have been leaked, but the unsurprising news from all of them um, is that amongst those lobbying for a change in language and language matters here um, have been Japan, Saudi Arabia, and um, 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 Australia. Australia, because it produces lots of coal, uh, lots of that used to get, and I think still is now, uh, exported to China. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia, again, no mystery there. Even though you've had the greenwashing, I think, this uh, week of Saudi Arabia announcing that it will go carbon neutral in 2060, uh, the fact of the matter is that Saudi Arabia is the world's largest exporter uh, of oil, not the world's largest producer. I think that's either Russia uh, at the moment or the United States. I haven't looked at the figures recently, uh, but it was the United States. Um, uh, either way, Saudi Arabia relies on exporting oil and whatever MBS says uh, I would expect that will remain the case um, for a long, long time. And I'm not expecting that particular target of uh, in 40 years time uh, to, be, to be met. But nonetheless, that's the offer. Uh, meanwhile, um, I don't know about Japan, I presume uh, that it relies on imports of coal, imports uh, of oil. I'm not sure what's going on uh, with its nuclear industry after Fukushima. Uh, either way, uh, they ain't going to be alone. Uh, it's not just three countries, of course, that have been lobbying uh, to turn, you know, to tune down the language, uh, to make the recommendations, um, you know, from their point of view, less radical. Uh, there will be many, many uh, countries uh, that have been engaged uh, in that. But these particular three countries have been singled out um, in, in the British uh, press. Uh, meanwhile, as a sort of uh, footnote uh, to that story, I just thought it was worthwhile. I know it's an old story, but just thinking about um, Captain Kirk uh, going into space, uh, William Shatner, the Canadian um, actor at 90, uh, I admire his physique, I admire his health, at, uh, at 90 years to get into that uh, capsule and to be shot off uh, into space. Did he do a, um, an orbit of Earth? Either way, uh, for an individual, that's one thing. The problem is, of course, um, um, that there's a, um, a tendency in um, our class uh, society for what is at one uh, moment luxury uh, consumption uh, to become a necessity. Uh, and of course, that's what, um, you know, one part of capitalism is about. It wants to sell people things. So department two um, within the capitalist system 
um, hires advertising agencies who work 24 hours a day to influence us uh, to consume aristocratic uh, uh, products. And I include now for the moment uh, amongst the um, consumption patterns of the aristocracy, the emerging uh, space tourism um, industry. And, and just listening to um, Captain Kirk as he got out of um, um, you know, the um, space capsule and talking about what a thrilling experience uh, he, he had. I must admit that I, maybe it's because I'm getting old, I'm rather sceptical because I was brought up in the age of when air flight still had that glamour uh, of where people talked about their jet set. And this was a lifestyle that one was meant to envy. Well, last time I went on a jet, I have to say, I had to queue up for hours uh, at the airport. I was stuck in a bloody tin can. I felt claustrophobic. Uh, this wasn't to me a glamorous uh, experience. Yes, I could look down you know, over the person next door uh, at the little houses and uh, all the rest of it. Nonetheless, I don't view air flight myself nowadays as a glamorous uh, experience, but I, I would expect that if I was flown up in an aircraft in the 1920s, uh, I, I would be absolutely thrilled and absolutely excited. And basically, I, my experience would be used uh, by the burgeoning um, air flight uh, industry to sell this product to aristocrats, to the bourgeoisie, to the middle classes, and yes, eventually uh, to the masses, at least in uh, the so-called th first world. Uh, I know it's no longer confined to that, but you get, you get the idea. And the idea that you're launched up into space, and it's such an experience. I, I think this is because th this is an experience that very few people have had. And I can't see any fundamental difference between going into space, quite frankly, and bungee. Uh, uh, jumping. And if I told you that bungee jumping was the most spiritual experience of my life, uh, I think you'd be scratching your head and say, this guy is a bit of a strange one. And that's really how I view spaceflight, that uh, it, it, it isn't in itself particularly glamorous. They're not, they're not piloting uh, uh, this uh, aircraft. It's all done uh, automatically. You're launched up and then it, you, you're guided down. Uh, you have nothing to do with it in terms of control, direction, um, or anything uh, like that. But nonetheless, my main thesis is, in the middle of this um, uh, global crisis to do with the climate, we shouldn't ignore um, you know, what is put out there uh, in terms of fuel, uh, in terms of um, CO2 uh, uh, gases and other such uh, gases, to actually launch that vehicle uh, up um, into uh, space. Just should be uh, also worth pointing out, I've got some figures here, um, and that is no surprise again, uh, that if we take the US military, uh, it accounts for 80% um, of um, greenhouse gas, uh, or no, energy use, uh, in terms of the US uh, government. And I think you can, you can sort of more or less translate that into uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions when it comes to government. And uh, in, in terms of the figures that I've read, although it's not saying that much, it says something that if you take the US military 
and you say that this is a country, it would rank uh, in terms of energy use uh, up there as between the 47th and the 55th uh, um, um, country uh, in the world. Uh, as I say, when you get down to 47 and 55, uh, you are dealing with pretty poor countries, I think. Either way, uh, the US uh, military machine uses an awful lot of energy. Okay, we'll come to the military question um, in a minute or two. COVID, plan B, uh, we all know uh, the figures, they're going up. Why are they going up? Because basically we've had Freedom Day, uh, we've had the schools, uh, we've had basically governments not only shrugging their shoulders, uh, when it comes to mask use, which is, I would have thought, a pretty marginal thing, but nonetheless, it's clearly a factor. But not just struggling, you know, not just taking a neutral position, uh, but various government ministers basically mocking uh, the idea uh, of wearing masks. So it's a very varied experience. I don't know what it is in terms of around the country. In London, it varies considerably. Um, in terms of whether you travel by bus, what bus route, what time of day. Um, you know, my experience has either been very few people wearing a mask or most people uh, wearing a mask. I can't work out any particular uh, pattern myself. All I know is it's no longer uh, legally uh, enforceable. It's no longer, um, you know, considered mandatory. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, travel, it's certainly not in, enforced in, in, any, in any sense. And, and indeed, in terms of um, uh, life, while you do get some various venues in England, my experiences of England enforcing some sort of control, uh, there are many other venues now uh, that don't have social distancing, don't encourage people to wear masks. Uh, or anything of the kind. And it's no surprising as we approach winter and we've got a, a, you know, a very bad uh, um, cold uh, bug going around and we're expecting some sort of flu um, um, epidemic um, that uh, managers of um, NHS hospitals are warning of um, reaching some sort of breaking point, November, December, January, um, and therefore urging uh, preparation for plan B and various measures that would limit uh, the spreads of um, the spread of uh, um, sneezes and diseases. Okay. Um, but yeah, we have a government that's basically saying, as it did last time, uh, don't cancel Christmas. Indeed, I remember last year uh, Boris Johnson accusing, um, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, of wanting to cancel Christmas. And there I'd, I remember <laughs> spending Christmas at home uh, because Boris Johnson was forced uh, to cancel uh, Christmas um, and delayed um, putting in the measures and uh, going in for some tightening um, um, of control early enough. And that's been the history. Uh, of this government. So we've had one big success, uh, which is the vaccine program and um, um, everything else in my view has been um, bad government uh, management. 
what's going on now in terms of boosters, uh, I don't know. What's going on in terms of flu jabs, I don't know. All I know is I can't get one. I mean, that's my um, situation. And as far as I understand it, while they've um, put in measures to reduce the time um, lag from six months after you had your second injection to five, um, the number of people uh, that uh, require vaccination and the number of people are getting a vaccination, uh, there's a definite uh, lag uh, going on. Meanwhile, um, clever, have a, clever, clever Minister of Health, um, Sajid Javid, has imposed this sort of quota system on GPs and uh, basically picked up on the Daily Mail campaign for face-to-face -face consultations. Uh, we've had a very good article in The Weekly Worker talking about the strain that GPs uh, are under, under present uh, circumstances. And we have the news that um, GPs are, um, are voting on taking industrial action. Uh, this will be against this idiot idea uh, that you sort of report your GP uh, if they've fallen below uh, some uh, quota. I mean, the idea that you would impose uh, a quota strikes me as completely irrational uh, because you take different areas of the country, you've got different health profiles, you've got different age uh, profiles, but somehow uh, the Minister of Health uh, believes that we should have some, you know, one size uh, fits all uh, solution. Um, uh, to this uh, question. I mean, the fact of the matter is an awful lot of consultations can quite adequately be done over the phone um, or using Zoom or using a smartphone. Uh, it's perfectly uh, adequate for a lot of uh, things. In terms of something that's new, that's a different question. In terms of uh, other things, I'm not going to get into it, but you get the point. You don't need a face-to-face -face, uh, consultation by definition. Okay, well, there's a couple of items that I would normally finish the political report with. I'm not going to finish it in the moment, but I, they just sort of struck me as um, revealing about the present uh, culture uh, that we're living in. Uh, and I saw, I don't know whether it will be followed up, but I saw the, um, the story about um, Crystal Palace uh, fans. That's a team in South London and their fans being investigated after an away game in uh, Newcastle against Newcastle United. I've spoken about Newcastle United a couple of weeks ago, basically being taken over by Saudi Arabia, which in practice means uh, Mohammed bin uh, Salman, uh, the crown uh, prince. And uh, what the Crystal Palace fans had is a banner uh, with a picture of somebody with a sword um, aiming at the penguin. I think it was a penguin. I'm not quite sure why. Presumably that's the, uh, the motto of Newcastle United. I know that they play in black and white, and so I presume that the bird is a penguin, but I could be wrong. Either way, the banner basically said, terrorism, civil rights, beheading, censorship, persecution. And uh, this has been uh, reported to the police. The police are investigating it. Why? Uh, because this could cause offence. Well, one would guess that it's designed 
uh, to cause uh, offence. I mean, that's what uh, uh, you know fans from different teams do uh, to each other. You know, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, it's a bit like you know politicians uh, from the two sides of the House of Commons. The idea that they're out to uh, spread love and peace and um, harmony. No, I mean, what they're throwing is barbs. What they're throwing is provocations. They're attacking. Uh, and of course, that also involves insult, offence. What's wrong with that? Uh, you know, what's wrong with that in sport? Uh, I don't know. Certainly what's wrong with that in politics. And of course, in sport and in politics, you get an overlap. And uh, I'm quite encouraged that uh, Crystal Palace fans are baiting uh, the uh, Newcastle uh, fans over this. Now, I know we can then get into the argument, what club is pure? None of them are. Nonetheless, the politicisation of sport is there. Why the hell did uh, MBS buy up Newcastle? It's in order uh, to change the common perception that people have of Saudi Arabia. Being a country, yes, of terrorism, lack of civil rights, beheadings, censorship, persecution. That's the common image uh, of Saudi Arabia, that the buying up of this football club and the buying up, which I didn't know about until a few weeks ago, of the independent uh, uh, is all about. So this is soft power. Saudi Arabia wants soft power and it's got the money uh, to go out there and buy it up. And on that theme, I thought I would also just mention this one. And I'm not, again, on firm ground here, and I could be wrong, uh, but I was reading a news story. Uh, this is um, um, George Galloway uh, ranting and raving about it. And that's, I think, uh, um, the National Theatre in Scotland uh, banning next year, banning the word spooky. Um, now, apparently, and again, I've, I haven't uh, followed this one up, but apparently in World War II, the word spooky was used as an offensive word. I don't know whether this was directed against um, US black US servicemen. I haven't got a clue what uh, it's about. Either way, we're assured that no one has actually used the word spooky in an offensive way and no one has complained uh, about it. Uh, uh, but we're told uh, that um, they might do. Someone might use it in an offensive way and someone might be offended. Therefore, as a preemptive, uh, we'll ban the word. Well, quite frankly, the history of uh, language has been that language is not fixed. It's not decided by a committee. Human beings decide, and they have a brilliant ability of turning words to mean their opposite. So you know with, I don't know if it's still true, uh, with younger uh, people, you know, the word bad becomes good. I certainly know if you take the word nice, uh, it has gone through three complete about turns. So that the word nice used to mean nasty, and then it became nice means nice, and then it became nasty again. That's just the history and the nature of language, and you cannot police uh, language in this way. And if you do, what you do, you create a problem. And the problem is, of course, just like we've seen in um, um, Newcastle, uh, it's the authorities come in here and they start arresting people, banning people, um, 
fining people, imprisoning people, just like Saudi Arabia, uh, where you aren't allowed to use offensive words against the royals, against the House of Saud and their uh, religion. And lastly, just on the question of offence, uh, a certain Stanley Keeble will have his um, appeal hearing um, announced on Tuesday. I'm not going to say anything about it. I don't know what the result will be. But just to remind comrades that, uh, that uh, Stan Keeble was sacked from Fulham and Hammersmith Council, a Labour council, uh, for arguing with a Zionist um, on the enough is enough demonstration outside Parliament. I don't know when, years ago. <laughs> I can't remember. Either way, uh, this was a legitimate argument and um, it was uh, taped uh, by somebody on uh, um, the Panorama programme, um, from my memory. Um, and basically we had the uh, spectacle of uh, Stanley Keeble arguing with someone who then uh, the, the two are interrupted. But basically Stan was uh, explaining that the Zionists, which is a historical fact, collaborated uh, with the Nazi regime in Germany uh, during the early 1930s. Now, you might say that it was perfectly correct and legitimate. It was tactically advisable uh, to collaborate with the Nazis. It was understandable. Um, you know, if you're, for example, um, in, in a concentration camp, you might as an individual say, well, I'm going to collaborate in order to survive. But what we were dealing with here, just to fill in a bit of a fact here, uh, is something a bit different. That what we actually had is a movement that in its own peculiar way welcomed uh, open anti-Semitism uh, because it thought that anti-Semitism was inherent uh, in um, Christian um, 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 society. Um, in other words, uh, the place for Jews was not in the foreign countries of Germany, Britain, Russia, um, Europe was a foreign land for them and they would never be trusted, always be despised. That was inevitable that their true place was in Israel. And therefore the, the Zionist movement, official Zionist movement, actually welcomed uh, Hitler's Nuremberg laws, which discriminated uh, against Jews and deprived Jews of German citizenship. Now that's a fact. Um, uh, but what, what that was interpreted as is one as an example of anti-Semitism. So I think it was the leader of the council, I want to be careful here, uh, I think said so this strikes me as anti-Semitism. But what the comrade was sacked for was causing offence. Well, again, I come back to, uh, I do think that when you get into arguments between sharply divergent views, you know, one view will be offensive to someone else. I think Zionism is an offensive ideology to me. You know, the idea that Jews cannot be equal um, in a secular uh, Western society strikes me as offensive. Uh, the idea that all non-Jews are automatically anti-Semites strikes me as offensive. The idea uh, that Palestinians are in essence foreigners in Palestine strikes me as offensive. And I will continue to say, not just that it's offensive, I would say, uh, that that needs questioning, that needs politically challenging. Either way, 
we do stand uh, for freedom of speech. And inevitably, if you stand for the freedom of speech, if you stand for that as a principle, you have to accept that people will be offended sometimes when that freedom is used. And uh, we uh, not only stand for freedom for ourselves, uh, we also stand for freedom of um, speech for our opponents. And indeed, we believe that the best way uh, to defeat our opponents uh, is in debate. And for that, we need the freedom uh, to publish. We need the freedom uh, to broadcast. We need the freedom not to be sacked, not to be uh, silenced. So I began in that sense with what might be, might appear to be a trivial story. I don't think it is of uh, Newcastle United. Uh, I think it's a profoundly important uh, question. Okay, over in the United States, we have uh, Steve Bannon and the committee that's investigating the events of uh, January the 6th, uh, charging him with contempt. And that was a unanimous uh, decision. Basically, uh, the case that is being made is that Trump had inside knowledge of what was going to happen on January the 6th. I don't think there's any real doubt about that. He called the demonstration. Uh, whether he expected them to break into uh, the Capitol and uh, use violence, that's a different question. Certainly what he expected, though, and what he was, uh, um, you know, um, had in his head from what we can tell is that this demonstration would be used either to put backbone um, into his vice president, um, Pence, or to intimidate his vice president, Pence, uh, because basically the scheme was this was uh, Trump's last throw, uh, that what was meant to happen is that Pence would refuse uh, to recognize the voters uh, for Joe Biden. You know, the American system is indirect election and all the rest of it, uh, that um, Joe Biden won the popular vote. He won the vote in the Electoral College. Uh, but Pence, the vice president, presided, would preside over the count. And basically what Trump was urging, and we know that, urging um, on um, Pence to do was to basically stymie uh, that process, either by calling other electors or ruling various electors uh, out of order. And we know all the court cases um, and all the pressure uh, that Trump and his team were putting um, on um, various states uh, to achieve that end. We also now know what we really did know um, on January the 6th and up to January the 6th, because it was made public, is that um, former uh, chiefs of staff, uh, former um, administration um, defense secretaries were basically saying uh, that the army will the armed forces will not be used uh, in terms of overthrowing this election. We are not going to have a coup. And we know now uh, that the serving uh, chief of staff, General Miley, was going round his people and basically saying, you're not going to let the fascists pass. That's his words. And he wasn't talking uh, about the rioters uh, outside the Capitol. He was talking about the fascist. That was his words, not mine. I don't define Trump as a fascist, but that was his words uh, for the outgoing 
administration. So you had, in other words, the chief of staff basically saying, do not obey the orders um, um, of your commander in chief. That's, that's what was going on. So the commander in chief had been agitating for the army to be involved, had been using the courts, uh, was also using the mob. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we had the state machine itself saying we are not going to be used. And indeed, we will take measures um, against those uh, that use illegitimate uh, measures. So I don't know, but imagine if Pence had uh, acted, from what I understand, unconstitutionally, what would have happened then? Uh, I presume that the army uh, would have actually uh, intervened. That's why I think Daniel Lazar uh, is right, uh, that what we were dealing with here is not just one, I'd, I never took it that seriously, but one coup attempt, one self-coup attempt by Trump, but there was also something else going on, which I think could legitimately be called uh, also a counter coup. Um, now, the question I raise is uh, in light of opinion polls, and let's not get carried away about opinion polls at the moment. Uh, and what they reveal isn't that Trump is riding on a surge of popularity. What they actually reveal uh, is that Trump is deeply unpopular. Uh, it's just that Biden is even more uh, unpopular. Nonetheless, what it shows uh, is in terms of um, 2024, uh, Trump is potentially a real contender uh, in terms of running uh, for president, uh, whether it's Biden or whether it's Harris or whether it's someone else, but I'd expect Harris myself, uh, that's a different uh, question. Either way, I just think this, um, you know, given all I've said, is what attitude would the Democrats have? What attitude would they have uh, um, in terms of if Trump won um, not the popular vote, uh, but won um, the Electoral College and that it involved all sorts of uh, gerrymandering? In other words, we're into a discourse in the United States today uh, of where the normal functioning of politics, the normal functioning of the Constitution is being questioned by both sides. The, the consensus has long broken down and we're entering into, I just call it this, and I'll finish with that, a different territory, much more unstable uh, territory. And of course, what counts internally uh, should also send you know, alarm bells off externally of how America uh, would act externally. And that brings me to China and hypersonic missiles. Um, I have to say, when I first heard news about hypersonic missiles, you know, Putin was boasting about hypersonic missiles. I was going, well, what are these damn things? I mean, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, they are, they're hypersonic. They, they go, well, I don't know how many times the speed of sound they go, but they go a lot of times at the speed of sound. So what are hypersonic missiles? Well, hypersonic missiles are a bit like uh, a souped up version of a cruise missile, which are subatomic. And um, you can direct ICBMs a bit, you can direct the warheads a bit, uh, but what we're dealing with here is more like a, um, a cruise missile uh, that can zig and zag 
um, as opposed to a nudge here and a nudge there. And also the advantage of uh, these uh, missiles is you can launch them and sort of park them in space. And you can also put them up there and direct them from an unexpected uh, direction. In other words, if we take old Soviet Union versus the United States, basically this would be a war when it came to nuclear missiles that would be conducted over the Arctic. Uh, that's the shortest route to get to Moscow from Nevada and uh, the shortest route to get from Kazakhstan, just making that one up, where the missile is uh, over to New York or wherever the hell it happens to be. Okay, so with these, these uh, hypersonic missiles, you can direct them from the other direction. Uh, what advantage does that give you? Well, all the early warning systems, I think, face north as a result of that, your radar, your satellites, and also uh, your uh, anti-missile missiles. They're all programmed for that. Okay, that can be overcome. I, I don't really buy the hype of these uh, missiles myself. And I think we're still dealing with, in essence, the same technology that goes back to the 50s and 60s, in essence, uh, because what we know um, is, I don't know when the date was, is that it doesn't take them that much to modify these missiles so that you have not one warhead on a missile, uh, but multiple. And I think there was an agreement between the Soviet Union that still applies and the United States that limited MIRVs, multiple independent something, whatever vehicles, whatever the hell MIRV stands for, um, to four. Well, you could theoretically, when that's what they originally had, you could have 16 warheads, or you can bung in, um, you know, diversions. And the radar, uh, the, um, the defensive missile cannot distinguish between what's a real warhead and what's a fake warhead. Or indeed, you can simply flood the system with so many warheads, it's overwhelmed. So whether this technology represents a real upping, uh, I'm very sceptical about myself, but I'm no general, I'm just me. Um, but what I would say is that the hype around it, um, that is something different. And I do remember, I was old enough to remember Kennedy versus Nixon. Nixon was the Republican candidate. Kennedy was the Democrat candidate. And interestingly, Kennedy um, accused the Republican administration of allowing the Soviet Union to steal a march uh, when it came to missile technology and the number of missiles uh, that it had. And um, Kennedy came to power basically on a red scare, which is interesting given Nixon and, um, you know, his association with McCarthyism and, um, you know, red baiting, um, you know, going right, right the way back. Um, either way, of course, the Soviet Union wasn't miles and miles ahead. Um, the United States was ahead technologically. The United States was clearly um, you know, uh, the most powerful military on the face of the planet. Uh, but with Kennedy being elected, uh, what he did, he put into a pro he put in a program of building a thousand Minutemen. These are um, were the latest um, intercontinental ballistic missiles, a thousand um, um, of them. And the Soviet Union 
then went in for a um, slow by slow uh, program of building up its um, arsenal in return. And I think we're in that sort of territory. Note uh, that China isn't part of this system um, um, of uh, agreements that uh, were um, negotiated during the Cold War. It's been building up its nuclear um, arsenal. Um, and of course, um, um, you know, from my angle, uh, you know, the danger is um, that what begins with a war over Taiwan um, could conceivably, um, you know, one step at a time um, escalate uh, into something a lot more uh, dangerous, like an exchange of uh, ballistic uh, missiles. Now, again, I'm very skeptical and I might be wrong uh, about the ability of anti um, ballistic missile defense. Maybe they can. Uh, develop it, but uh, at the present time, I think they simply get overwhelmed. Uh, either way, I, th th you know, what I'm basically saying it isn't that these hypersonic missiles represent such a, um, you know, a new technology um, that it makes the world so much more dangerous. No, it's the underlying drift towards war uh, that the United States is conducting vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and Russia, but mainly. China, uh, that's what we need to locate, not uh, China engaging in, um, how should we put it, some devilish um, arms race. Okay, um, yep, that one's done. Okay, just a few other things. Just to note uh, the uh, 10 ambassadors in um, Ankara being declared persona non grata. Um, this is over an individual, I don't know enough about it, we'll try to get an article on it this week, Osman Kavala. Um, I think he was arrested over the events of 2016, but was found innocent in the courts. This is the Gulanish uh, coup. Um, and what we have is Western governments basically saying that this, this, this isn't right, that we want the rule of law, you know, you, the usual stuff. So we actually get ambassadors from the US, France, Canada, Finland, Denmark, Germany, New Zealand, Norway and Sweden. I think all of them are NATO countries except Sweden and Finland and New Zealand. Right. So this, this is basically Turkey's NATO allies. Um, that are being that their ambassadors are being declared persona non grata, and one can certainly envisage a situation of where Turkey falls out with NATO, a uh, big time, um, and maybe that puts a question mark um, over NATO, and maybe war within NATO uh, itself. Uh, after all, we have tension uh, between Greece and Turkey over the Aegean, but we also have tension between Turkey and France um, over the Mediterranean, um, over gas and, uh, um, yeah, gas and oil deposits in the centre uh, of the Mediterranean and uh, Turkey's peculiar um, territorial uh, claim <laughs> that goes all the way out to, is it Crete, somewhere like that, you know, sort of all the way down there? Um, anyway, no, it goes all the way down, doesn't it, to the Libyan in the direction of Libya. Anyway, lastly, two other things. And that's, first of all, just to mention 
the up and coming appeal of Julian Assange. I think a crime that he's in in jail. He should be given, quote unquote, a medal uh, for what he he did. He's revealed the crimes um, of our masters and they, they, their crimes need exposing. And he's done a fantastic job. The fact that it's got so little coverage uh, in the mainstream media, um, you know, I think speaks volumes in terms of the decline um, um, of the mass media. And I'm not uh, um, elevating it up. I just think it's deteriorated. Um, so, yeah, that that needs to be mentioned. The idea of him being extradited to the United States is just too, too foul uh, uh, to think about. Um, he ought to be released. He ought to be released now. Um, lastly, um, I just wanted to note um, what seems to be uh, not the signs of the decline of uh, the Labour left, but the decomposition um, of the Labour left. If we look at the Chatham House group, uh, momentum has walked out. It has no purpose. Uh, the campaign group uh, lacks any backbone. That's the grouping that used to be around um, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, has a history before that. Uh, but no principles, no backbone. Indeed, if you look at John McDonnell, uh, he seems to be selling out completely uh, to the ideological agenda um, of the witch hunt. We sort of knew that he wouldn't mention the question, but there's an interview between him and Sasha um, in um, the latest edition of Solidarity, uh, the paper of the so-called Alliance for Workers liberty. Read that and see what he says uh, about the question of anti-Semitism. And as to the rest of the Labour left, while I think it will renew itself at some point in some way, it's quite clear uh, that if we look at the, as I said, the Chatham House uh, left, if we look at the so-called so socialist campaign group, if we look at the Labour left alliance, if we look even outside the Labour Party, um, at the Chris Williamson group that was meeting in Nottingham over the other week, that what we're dealing with here is beyond decay, uh, that we're dealing with clear signs of uh, putrefaction. That seems to be what's going on um, at the present time. And on that happy note, I will finish. Thank you, Stan. Hmm. Let's finish on a, <laughs> on a high. Okay. Okay, so transform.